funny, nothing makes you as aware of how long a minute can be as being live on a show or having a critical failure during a live stream. Isn't minute that true? Really yeah. Anything can happen. <laughs> hmm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. If you want to put a question in, sneak over to that uh, interface and you'll see some links to something called Mukana. That's our Q&A session, session. And that helps you get your questions into the show. And that's what drives the show. Our second hour, we're always talking about a more vertical thing, and today we're preparing to welcome our educators back. The traditional summer break is ending, and it's back-to-school planning time for many people, so our second hour will welcome some of our office hours education voices to bring us up to date on their future plans. So back-to-school is kind of our second hour theme today, but this is the first hour where we address your questions, so let's dive in. Robert, what's up first for today? Thank you, Bill. Uh, we begin with Chris, Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, playing around with doing a QR code Gobo on Brick. The idea works with video projection, so I think Gobo will work. But anyone try this on Brick? Uh, Jason Bache is going to help us out. Jason? All right. I have never tried this on Brick, but assuming the Brick is not Brick-colored, um, you should be okay. It's really all about contrast and how much data you need to transmit with the QR code. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Plus, the size of the font you're projecting through the Gobo onto the Brick is going to be in any kind of... <laughs> An inconsistent surface. Normally when we project things, there's two ways to do it. You're trying to map something that looks kind of textured and realistic, in which case a textured background is fine. But if you've got something like text, particularly small text, irregularities can kind of fool your eye into making it harder to read. So I wouldn't go with small text on a brick as a gobo projection, but that doesn't mean it's impossible. Just be very careful and look at your result and say, can the audience read this easily? Because if you're taking the time to put information up, my philosophy has always been make sure the audience has the best chance possible of being able to absorb that information. Let's go to the next question. Dan Huber from Erie, Pennsylvania writes, I have a new install with a soundbar camera in front of the room and a PTZ optics camera in the back of the room. Both connected USB 3 to a PC behind the display. When both are connected to the PC, only the PTZ camera will display. Is it a setting? Well, Courtney's going to help us try to diagnose this, Courtney. Well, there's a couple of things he left out as to what is he trying to look at the camera with. Usually, uh, most uh, Windows, if it is a PC, only has one webcam input uh, available at a time, although you can have two USB 
webcams in, you have to select which one you're going to be looking at. So it's a selection. You can choose between one or the other, but you usually can't choose both unless you're running some software that sees both and uh, puts them up like OBS. So it depends on what you're trying to look at it in. So if you're using a uh, <clears throat> some software that recognizes multiple USB video inputs, then you should be able to do it, uh, put two of them up at the same time. Uh, if not, if it's just the, the web viewer or the <clears throat> Uh, device viewer the, or the video window in, uh, in Microsoft Windows, then uh, you can only choose a, you know, what would normally be a webcam, which is one of your two USB cameras. I think that's Courtney, is, is USB still for webcams kind of a tiered protocol? Is there more than one way to implement it or is it all the same now and both cameras should get a equal shot at grabbing the connection? I think they both can. Jonas might know more about this than me because I haven't really looked that closely into the inner workings of Windows and how it chooses that uh, uh, webcam video and the protocol that it uses. It comes in as a device, and it and it depends on how it's uh, uh, the device identifies itself to Windows. So you know it, it could depend on the two, the one that's built into your um, uh, soundbar, maybe a maybe incorporated into the soundbar device driver. So it depends on who wrote the drivers for that particular item uh, and how it identifies itself to the operating system. So that okay. may be the problem is if it identifies itself and pulls out the video and converts it in the driver for the soundbar, that may be where the problem yeah, I don't know much about the digital stuff behind it, but I do know I've had a couple of devices that once logged in, it was really hard to get the system to forget about them, so to speak. They they somehow took some kind of priority so that I, in some cases I've had to reboot systems to get anything other than the thing that grabbed the connection first to go. But anyway, let's move on to the next question. Jason Robert Shaw from Sarasota, Florida is writing, iPad OS 17 supports external USB cameras and cameras, uh, webcams rather. Has anyone tried this? How did it work? Ian Jonas Dental is going to help us start off, Jonas. So I only proxy tried it, which means I didn't try it myself, but I had someone else try it, uh, one of uh, good friends. And it, what's really cool is that um, it's UVC compliant support before there's ways with like um, the different solutions where you could have a proprietary protocol, you attach to the USB raw, but now that was a bit difficult. Um, we found it mostly works in um, the Apple video messaging thing, but there's also an app and I'll put it into um a link to the test flight of that in Mukana that's like a beta version. If you have the beta version of iPadOS, you can use it. And what's really cool is that allows you to create a monitor and recorder out of your iPad. So you can just use any of the typical capture cards that support the UVC protocol, like all of the Elgato ones. And then you can have up to 4K, I think 60 FPS and 1080p, uh, 120 FPS recording at the all the typical Apple-ish standards like ProRes and uncompressed and compressed. And you can all do all that. So I think it's going to be, as soon as Zoom integrates it, it's going to be like a great kit. You ship out a iPad mini with like a webcam and a USB microphone, and that would be a great kit. Um, that's one of the big advantages of the Apple ecosystem. I hope that they bring that into the normal um, native camera connection. 
because that means um, not all app developers have to add this manually to their app, but it's just there suddenly presented by the OS. That would be the ideal. Right now, you still need to implement it yourself, but see where they take it. You know, is this something that's going to finally uh, solve that old problem we used to have where if somebody had a webcam, bringing it into a computer that expects only an HDMI cam used to be really hard. It was tough to find a way to use webcams. Will this make it easier? UVC class compliancy makes it a lot easier. Ah, okay. And this is now specifically for the iPad, where like before you had to like write that specific driver yourself and then. There are ways, but it's super hard and you have to be versed in like USB driver writing and like <laughs> all that, which is like a whole other magic thing. <laughs> and now you can use UVC class compliant uh, devices. So now uh, if you don't have control over the hardware, where it might be really hard to implement that driver if you don't have control over the hardware, um, it should now work. We have tested it with like a capture card and like a Brio C920, I think those two worked well. And then the Insta 360 links and those that are a little more exotic, I think they'll probably start working with updates as they like expand it. Because of course, it's still a compliancy test, but most manufacturers don't fully comply. There's like always, yeah, we are UVC compliant ish. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, Jason, you had some thoughts. Yeah, it's been the case for, for a couple years now that iPads have had USB-C class compliance. And the nice part about that, at least for audio, is that you can plug in a sound card and you won't run your you won't run your, your battery down. You can use a USB-C uh, OWC small dock and put power in line with it. I have used this very briefly on a webcam for iPad OS 17, and I'm I, I love glass compliance. It makes everything so much easier. Also, as an adage to that, um, you can also use Ethernet, and that's really nice for those of us who who don't like to drop out of Zoom calls. Oh, that's why my mini dock from OWC has those. It's class added. Nice. All right, let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas is writing, would the Shark Fun Cooler be an effective cooler for the Melee series of small brick-like computers? And a link is provided. And Courtney deals with these a lot. Courtney? Well, I, I, it, it does look like fun. I think this cooler is designed to go on the back of a phone with a smooth back on it. You can see it there. For these gamers that are uh, gaming on their phones. It does require a separate power supply. It has a, a Peltier device that goes against the phone and a fan in it. Uh, it looks like about an inch and a half fan that uh, sucks in outside air, has some LEDs behind it and blows it out to of course, cool the hot side of the Peltier device. Um, Peltiers have been tried to be used as coolers, but they're really inefficient because they don't they just move the heat about an eighth of an inch and then you then the fan has to remove it so it's not that much more efficient than just a fan that's in good contact with the uh, with the surface of the heated device and that's the problem with the melee the melee uh, is designed to dissipate heat from the surface of its case and it's ribbed uh, to give it more surface area. So something like that cooler would not be able to make a good heat transfer contact to the case of the Melees. 
they work best without it. The whole and you're destroying the whole reason to get the melee, which is it's completely silent. It doesn't have a fan. It doesn't need a fan because it can operate if you keep its its case on the free air. And if you want an LED, you know, if you want to get a mini PC, get get an F9 like this. It has the magic LEDs that are rotating around in colors here, um, and it has a fan built in. It's small in size and it has ventilation. And it only gets hot on one side because it's pulling the air through, uh, like, but it's built in and you don't have to run a separate power supply. And it has the same internal components and the same number of ports, if not more than the Melee. It has three HDMI ports, two, uh, uh, two gigabit ethernet ports on it. So uh, if you're looking for a little PC, the T9, from Funio or something, you have to buy it out of AliExpress. So take a look at that. I love it. Our theme today is lights. So you have a small computer with disco lights built in, and you have a iPhone cooler or iDevice cooler that <laughs> and looks I like it you, has Tony Stark's heart. This thing is so annoying bed. when you look at it across the room, and, it, <laughs> and I don't know how to turn them off. There's no setting that lets you turn the stupid... Uh, flashy LEDs off. So it's very uh, in a dark room. <laughs> Lovely. All right. Let's move on to the next question. From JJ McKenna, San Rafael, California. Is there a way to control to control a remote stream deck with BitFocus Companion? We know BitFocus Satellite works great for controlling a remote companion install, but what about a stream deck? Jonas. So the st by Stream Deck, I'm guessing you mean the Stream Deck software by Agato, which is like the other way you can use a Stream Deck apart from Companion. Um, no, they really only allow you to attach local USB devices. You could, in theory, use something like USB here or a remote USB, a USB remotization tool. But I wouldn't recommend that just because Keep in mind that there's a lot of uh, graphical data being flown from the PC to the Stream Deck, and then the return is negligible, and you could do it with that. But if you have like a live video on there, there's quite a lot of updates that are being sent. Um, there are, like you said, there are ways if you use BitFocus Companion, but if you want to use the native Stream Deck software, then no, that doesn't work, sadly. They don't have those deep hooks uh, for us and developers. There you go. Next question. From Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, provides a link here to a small rig cart and is asking, I know I've seen another cart like this that can fold flat and still be wheeled, but I can't remember who makes it. Help, oh, brain trust, you're my only help, office hours. Yeah, I've seen this rendering going around. I'm not sure that this one from Small Rig is a product. I think they put that out on the web because they were looking for everybody to say, design ideas, tell us about that look like a rendering. Um, I have used carts from Cartabag in the past. They have some folding carts, some that at least uh, many years ago were very sophisticated. Now, those are kind of those wireframe carts that are very good for traveling, but also fold out into something that is pretty production worthy, not entirely like a full scale cart for on set use, but you're always kind of fighting this combination. I want something big and stable to make sure that my equipment stays safe, but I also want something I can fold up and put in the trunk of my car. Those are two difficult to do uh, design goals at the same time. Uh, Jason, what are your thoughts? I've, hmm. my immediate thought was 
go to Sam's Club, get an industrial set of um, of shelving, you know, the, the, the heavy plastic and then some plywood and caster wheels. I, I think that's going to be your best bet unless you want to spend some big bucks. So uh, I was just told that the brand is innovative that has something like this. Uh, Courtney, your thoughts? You've been uh, taking stuff onto sets forever and have been I around have a, all these. I have a, a variety of do-it-yourself cards. I did find something, uh, Uline, which you know makes a lot of industrial and corporate, I mean, uh, industrial uh, manufacturing supplies, has these uh, eight-in-one multi-carts that fold pretty flat, and they have fairly large wheels. The one that you showed, has has pretty small caster wheels, which may be pretty tough on on a set or on location uh, to get over some heavy stuff. But it folds flat like this and can fit in your car. Uh, there's also a rock and roller carts. I don't have a picture of it yet. Also makes a, a two shelved cart uh, that I think you can get them at B and H. Let me see. Here's one. I think they use that same cart that Uline uses. And they make a shelf that goes on top of it. You can see it here for about 125 bucks, and then we'll fold flat. So that's another possible alternative. But uh, this is a little bit nicer than the one you showed the rendering of because it has larger wheels. And yeah, when you're actually, trying to I, leap over I'll, cables, tell me that I'll tell you the small wheels are a pain. And uh, also, thanks to the uh, ADA, we have those lovely little bump strips that are on every every single. Uh, cut uh, off curb curb access ramp that goes from the street to the sidewalk is now covered with little bumps that stop small casters from working. Yeah. Um, the other thing I've used, I've used the rock and rollers for a long time, and I actually outfitted mine with uh, both a larger central deck that uh, replaces the mid shelf and then it has a set of little u brackets and a shelf on top of that so when it's fully configured you can stretch it out uh, put a deck on the bottom for pelican cases and things like that you have a work surface which is larger than actually the the footprint of the cart when you've got it all unfolded and and hooked up and then a bridge above that that you can put a monitor on things on and i use that all the time on field production so yeah there you go that's exactly the kind of system that i use out there except that i also bought the deck for the bottom so instead of the rails on the bottom it has yet another shelf um it, it's not terribly uh costly it's it's pretty good in terms of uh, robustness. I've been using it for probably eight or nine years, and uh, it hasn't really fallen apart. I, the the only downside to it is that if you if you're not paying attention and you load up the top with a lot of gear, it becomes a bit top heavy. So I always just say I need two crew people to move that location to location to make sure that I don't run across. Doesn't that it problem. wobble a little bit when you push it with all that weight on the top? A little tiny bit. No diagonal. Cases. There's no diagonal supports on those verticals, which I I looked at the design and I went, hmm, this is not going to be very stable. I'd say mm, is the right thing. It is not. It is nowhere near a full scale. Um, oh, what's the big company's carts that we see on sets a lot? I'm spacing on it for a moment. Mag, uh, Magliner. Magliner. Yeah, it's not a it's not a magliner, and it doesn't do the same thing. And I wouldn't use it every single day on a movie set and expect it to last. Now, I would typically go out once or twice a month for a shooting day, maybe uh, two or three days in a row, and then it would sit in the top of my voice booth up there for six months or three months until the next big shoot came up. So I had a pretty light load. Uh, if you're doing daily work, really the the proper tools are the way to go for this. But it just depends on what your use profile is. Um, 
Next question. Håkan Fors, Stockholm, Sweden, is looking for suggestions how to quickly mount a small camera to a goalpost or similar. Are there any ratchet mounts out there? Oh, yes. Jason, help us out. Mm. Well, um, in my last studio, I, I made one. So the, the way that I did this was a combination of a pole mount that goes to Visa, right? So there's the Visa mount on the, on the front, a combination of, of kind of various plates. Took that and added, um, just added a, you know, a pole to it. And then on the back are um, the, these things that you use to attach hoses to things. And um, all that is Hose pretty clamps. much available in a hardware store. Yeah. But also, the the grip industry has plenty of things like this. So I would take a look at Marker Tech and look for pole mounts. You'd probably find two or three. The people who install antennas used to do this a lot. Uh, they would put television antennas back in the old days to chimneys. So I think they figured out a lot of circular mounting options that are probably still available out there. Courtney? Yeah, if, it depends on the size, the type of camera, small camera. The action cameras, the GoPro established a style of mount and an interface for mounting those action cameras uh, years ago. And there's tons of products out there for attaching them to almost anything. And if you just go on Amazon and type in GoPro mounts, they have them for attaching to helmets and they have straps and body mounts and super sticky pads are designed to go on curved surfaces. This is the GoPro mount here with this multi-fingered uh, a connection there and then they make a variety of straps and things to mount it oh look here's a clamp with a gooseneck and you can mount it on the front of cars uh you can mount it to a uh, oh, this would work on your uh, a gumby mount uh to a beam etc and they all have this uh gopro connection to it that is designed to connect to the uh the, the bottom of the gopro holder so if you're Camera is an action camera that uh, has a GoPro mount on it. That would be a good place to start. Next question. Jonas Dottel from Stuttgart, Germany, and here on the panel, Obscure is a new OBS alternative for streaming built on Unreal Engine. What does the panel think about it? Jonas, tell us more about this. This sounds interesting. So... I found a little trailer online and it's pretty interesting because it looks really similar to OBS, but what I've done is they have built this streaming engine on top of um, Unreal Engine. So this allows you to, they are showing it right now, like have all these trackers and having green screen and have like an Unreal environment behind you. Um, and I find it really interesting and like it's it, it's really cool. The business model is a little weird. Like you can add an extension to your Twitch stream that allows people then to trigger events in your scene. So like if you give five, if you donate five euros or five US dollars, there's like a firework behind you and stuff like that. And they take uh, 20% of that. And that's how they say they can sustain building all of this. So that's still a little up in the air. Um, probably some data mining going on there as well. Um, What's really annoying, though, is like streaming companies really have to stop calling stuff OBS something and then making it look like OBS Studio because it's really like there's so many OBS alternatives that then just look exactly like it. It's, yeah, it's really confusing for the con consumers. And then it's all these questions. Hey, have you actually built this? Or is it actually OBS and you're stealing source code again? And 
all these questions that you don't really want to answer. Yeah, you know, online gaming has turned out to be such a behemoth of a business business model, a, a community model, let's call it that, that I think a lot of people are trying to mine that for, hey, if I could just get $5 from each of the nine gazillion gamers out there, I would be rolling in money for the rest of my life. Courtney, you had some thoughts? I was going to ask you, since it has OBS in the title, is it is it open source or do they, it's proprietary? No, not at all. So this is proprietary, OBS, so they, it, is it can't have OBS's source code in it if they are trying to sell it without it being open source. So it, and that's built on the Unreal Engine platform, right? So you yes, have to at least know saying. your way around that, which as we have no, explored they, through it, no? They, they seem to make it really easy with like a marketplace and hooking up all of these trackers and there's like ah. an established format for VTubers, so like people that use and character animation that then is synced to the lips and like the arm movement and all that. Um, they show that pretty well in the video. I think okay. I can play that well, again. And because what's really cool is like you see it's, they remove all the friction of like integrating it into your pipeline. You can, uh, these are pretty common uh, trackers and then you add the trackers and then what you see is they import a, a file and that file then allows you to have the VTuber avatar that you normally have just in this software. And it's going to like make a lot of the start easier. And then hopefully we'll see a lot of people like starting to use Unreal Engine for broadcast um, build out in there. But like, yeah, it's a great way to get started with this more like Unreal Engine type broadcast. <laughs> you could tell that was Unreal Engine because that banana was not for scale. That's my last comment. We're moving on. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas wants to know, what is the noise floor of a microphone and how does the electrical noise of the preamp impact it? Yeah, Jason, start us off. Sure. Um, so any piece of analog uh, recording or mixing gear generates a certain amount of electrical noise that adds to the audio signal. The term noise floor is used to describe the, the, the sum total of that self-generated noise. So uh, the noise floor of a microphone itself is actually just one ingredient in, in what ends up being the noise floor for each channel, right? And so that that's really interactive. If you have the, the same preamp and the same interface um, and you're recording in the same room, but then you swap out the mic, you have an entirely different noise floor because it's it's not exactly a perfect science. There's a, there we go. So if you look in red, that that in general is, is the noise floor from our, our friends at Isotope. That's from what, RX-8, I think. And that, that gives you a good sense of it. But keep in mind, the the mic itself is, is only a little piece of this. Uh, Courtney, continue. Yeah, and remember, uh, noise is cumulative. Uh, so the uh, noise, your noise sources start with the uh, microphone. And if it's a dynamic microphone with no preamplification in it, it's very little noise floor. There might be some hum that it's picking up, and that would be your noise floor for a dynamic mic. Most condenser microphones have an FET preamp built in uh, that converts the uh, the condenser, the variable capacitance of the uh, condenser's capsule into a voltage. And those those are very low noise uh, transistors, the FET transistors that are in there. But the uh, 
the signal without any noise entering the capsule or with the capsule grounded is how you measure the noise floor of a microphone. And you measure the noise floor of a preamp uh, by putting a, uh, a load resistor uh, across the uh, across the input to it and measuring the noise that comes out the other side. And it's like a hiss, uh, a certain amount of broadband noise that comes out, but it's very low level. And so, but it is cumulative. So one, you know, a, a noisier preamp can mask the noise floor of the microphone. It won't make much difference if the noise floor of the preamp is higher than the noise floor of the microphone. Then you don't sweat the bad noise floor of the microphone. You just have to get you a better preamp. So uh, it's cumulative, and uh, anything with an amplifier in it will have a noise floor, which is just the uh, electrical noise that the transistors generate uh, as in they're doing their amplification without a load or with the input load terminated. And the other thing you typically see with high-end microphones is a, a, a numerical voice for self-noise. That's what the micro. That's what we're talking about here in terms of when you plug the microphone in, actively activate all the electronics in it. Is there how big a difference is there between the signal by speaking into the microphone and making the diaphragm move, as compared to everything else generated by all the electronics in the microphone itself? Expensive microphones have very, 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 very low noise floors. And so what we're talking about here is that a, a really good microphone will really not add much of anything listenable into that. The noise that you'll hear probably comes from other components down the, low, down the way. Now, that is not necessarily as true with inexpensive microphones. You can plug, I've plugged microphones in and there was an audible hiss behind there as the electronics tried to amplify the signals and get them to where they needed to be to the level they needed to be at. So it just depends on what you're doing. Um, but yeah, the, that's one of the reasons people move up in microphones. You're trying to get away from starting with noise that's going to be persistent throughout your whole audio chain until you get out to the speakers. Let's go to the next question. David Brady, New York, New York City, USA. CBS and Nickelodeon are teaming up for Super Bowl 58 with an alternative broadcast. What are the panelists' thoughts on this? And we have a SI.com link. Uh, John Snyder is going to start us off. John? I think it's a super interesting idea. It does two things for Nickelodeon or for CBS specifically. One, it helps them increase their audience for the Super Bowl, which is always a good thing. You can sell more commercials. But the other really interesting thing about it is it gives them an opportunity, a, a playground to try new techniques. And you probably won't see slime covering the end zones in the real Super Bowl, but they might <laughs> use some of those physics effects to figure out how to incorporate that in the shadows they're doing in a graphic somewhere in the Super Bowl. So it's a, it's a great way to have a playground, try to go a little bit further than you may be normally with, with graphics and see how it turns out. And I'm sure it's not lost on them that the Nickelodeon demographic is generally very young, which means that they're in introducing football as a pastime to a new generation constantly. I'm sure that's part of their thinking. Jonas has thoughts. Jonas? And I think that's a thing that we'll see more and more, that we have specific feeds for specific uh, demographics and audiences. With the cost of general production going down, this is a trend where we have seen it's not only one feed from uh, Super Bowl for a long time now already. Like you have, I don't know if it's with the Super Bowl or some other football thing, like Dude Perfect does a version of it. Then there's like the AWS stats feed. Then now there's Nickelodeon with bringing in more of a child audience into it. Um, this is a trend that we'll see more and more where like, 
I don't know if the Oscars is relevant enough to also get a Nickelodeon show or something like that, but where big events where the feeds are already produced, it's pretty straightforward for them to be like, you know what, let's either take the world feed or a specific feed and feed off of that. And like that's already happening with the uh, Super Bowl, like because Germany gets a different feed and then France gets a different feed slightly, or we get a world feed plus some ISOs. Um, so the infrastructure is already there. So like the others have said, it's a great testing ground, but also it will be like a showcase on, hey, we can bring a newer generation and the next uh, the next market to this. And of course, advertisers will love it. Courtney? Yeah, this is an interesting ploy. I've never seen it. There have always been alternatives, uh, counter-programming to the Super Bowl. Uh, for the people that really don't care about sports, you know, they'll watch the lingerie bowl or the puppy bowl, or, you know, there's, there's lots of these alternative channels that are put on during the Super Bowl to capture the audience that really doesn't care about the game or they don't care about the two teams that are playing. But this one looks a little bit different because it looks like they're actually licensing the video footage from CBS of the actual bowl game and oh, doing their own overlay of with Nickelodeon characters and slime and, uh, graphics, overlay graphics to fun it up for those kids that want to get into football early. So uh, this is it, it's a different in... take. And I guess I'm, I'm not sure how they're going to handle the advertising, in it. whether uh, maybe Nickelodeon will insert their own uh, ads over the top of available spaces. I don't know what the deal is, whether they, they'll carry the, the actual advertising or not. If they bring in SpongeBob for play-by-play. I'm in. That's all I'm saying. John Snyder has a question. Yeah, and they did it last year as well for a few key games. Uh, it was not the Super Bowl, but they, it's not the first time Nickelodeon's broadcast a game. I'm sure they use different commercials for it. Yeah, I'm sure they do too. This is, you know, this is a juggernaut. This is a massively profitable, massively funded global phenomenon. And so I'm not at all surprised that they are constantly looking for ways to extend its reach and cultural impact. It already has a huge one. Um, they're not sitting on their, resting on their laurels, as they say. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael with Broadcom saying they want to transition VMware customers to subscription-owning only licensing. What macOS visualization software for Windows, Linux would the panel recommend? Jonas, help us out. I mean, if you're using it for business, just keep using it. Um, if it's the platform that you know and love, just because of them switching to a more sustainable business model shouldn't worry you. We are often looking at companies that don't have a subscription service where I'm like, I don't know if you're going to produce the next version or how the support is going to be because there's an upfront cost. You have my money now. There's no incentive for you except for being a good company to help me and further the software, especially if there's no upgrade payments. That's also something to keep in mind just because they switch to a subscription so bad subscription model doesn't mean everything is bad. Otherwise, they wouldn't really like try to use the Mac to separate out and like do virtualization. I would buy a like a x86 uh, 6086 uh, platform and build your virtualization on that. You can use Proxmox or any of those virtualization. But I don't think on the Mac platform is the best platform to do virtualization, especially with how um, optimized the chips are. Because um, one of the things with virtualization is you now rely on a lot of CPU or you need to like 
handover specific cores or like a GPU specifically, it's harder to separate those resources out. And with how many uh, special purpose uh, chips are in an M1 and an M2 processor from like ProS encoders and like neural engine and all that, uh, I don't think it's a great platform to virtualize. That's interesting. So basically, Apple's move to system on a chip and putting everything on the same die has made it harder for some types of functions to run on the chip. Would you say that that's fair? You could say so. It's just as they move more processing away from a CPU to like a specific chip, like video decoding is not done on the CPU anymore. It's done on a specific outbound chip. If you now spawn five virtual instances and you actually want to run them as like a virtual machine, four of them don't have that co chip. Probably so what's going to happen is five yeah. don't have okay. it because the host will still have it. And like uh, Linux systems that are based on the X68 platform or on an ARM64 platform are still more performant for that type of level, especially if you go into the VM level uh, virtualization. What you can also do if you don't need uh, VM-level virtualization, you could use Docker, and that would probably still be fine for most things. But since you're asking, you'll probably want to do some video production-type work, and especially if you virtualize macOS, it will behave un unexpected because it doesn't have those chips if they don't get passed through, and now you have two that need the same chips, and I wouldn't do it. Okay, well, good. That it, it, It's helpful to kind of understand how the two things are designed for two different sets of functions. So useful. Thank you, Jonas. Let's go to the next question. From Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana. I'm trying to incorporate QR codes into some outdoor signage and finding lots of conflicting information on size of QR code versus distance to viewer. Anyone have good math on determining the QR code size, say, for 60 feet? Jason, can you help? I don't have any good math, but I can explain to you why you have so much disparity. Because if a QR code is going to be read by a smartphone, it's going to be very contingent upon the quality of the sensor that's reading the QR code. So there is low, medium, and high QR code error correction, which means how much um, duplication of the data. If you look at a QR code, this is officehours.global, you'll notice that there are four um, corners and there's there are two squares inside of, um, um, what are they called? Uh, no, I'm blanking. But basically, square inside of square inside of square. And you'll see that at um, at the top left, at the top right, and then the bottom right. And then if you look on the inside, ever so slightly in, you'll see the inverse of that. That's the way that a QR code does the alignment. And the amount of error correction is, is going to determine how much of that QR code can be obstructed. Uh, QR codes are actually designed, if you have a high set of error correction, to be um, only 30% visible and then still readable. So my advice is get the most rotten camera phone you can find and, um, and try to, you know, give it a shot, see if it works. So it's not, is it distance or is it camera resolution? It sounds like camera resolution is more well, important, both. really. The, the okay. two are related, right? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would say the camera resolution is going to matter more than distance, you know, depending upon how much data you're putting in there. 
And then at a so certain your audience point, members it's going to go with, the other way. Your audience members with newer, more sophisticated cameras will have a better shot of reading the QR code, even if it's smaller and farther away, compared to somebody who has an older phone that's been around for many, many years. Absolutely. Okay, good. Courtney, help, help additional? Well, there's a third variable besides the two variables that Jason's already talked about, uh, which is the resolution of the phone and the resolution of the uh, uh, error, amount of data or error correction. There's different versions of QR codes going from, uh, I think, uh, 21 by 21 up to 177 by 177. So if you're in these higher uh, versions, uh, version four here, which is, what is it, 33 by 33, you're going to need better resolution or you need to be closer or it's going to need to be bigger to resolve all those small spots. So it depends on the version of the QR code, which is probably why you're getting a lot of uh, debate over, you know, what's the best size for a certain distance. It depends on the version of the QR code, how much data is in it, how much error correction is in it, and the quality of the sensor of the phone that's shooting it. Can that be helped by keeping things simple on the back end in terms of just a simple URL, a tiny URL or something else that is a relatively small bit of data? Will that allow you to have a more grosser QR? Version one is probably the easiest uh, to to resolve. And it gets harder and harder to resolve as you go up in in resolution of the number of squares, basically, in the uh, QR, in the QR code version. So. Okay. Yeah. So keep, use the keep, smallest keep one that carries your carries your data packet. Use the use the lowest version that will carry your complete data packet is rule number one, and then uh, then experiment with how small you can make it to be resolved at sixty feet. There you go. Hopefully, uh, Chris, that helped you. Let's move. Next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. How will Bokeh fit into Apple Vision Pro content, not to get the viewer sick? Must all objects in the scene be in focus at full resolution? That includes icons, text backgrounds, foregrounds, items, already compensating for parallax effect. Boy, this is a complex question. We're going to start with Jason Bates. Jason, start us off. So I'm going to start by saying... Nobody knows, um, other than the you know the two and a half journalists that have have actually had this on their face. But in theory, bokeh is going to be much less of a factor than I think you think it might be because the um, because the Vision Pro is using foveated rendering to make anything that your eyes are binocularly focused on in perfect focus. So I, I don't really think this is going to be a big deal, but I'll, I'll let jo- Jonas and uh, Courtney weigh in. Jonas, weigh in. I, I mean, to explain the foveate render aspect, that kind of means no, not everything will be in focus. But what's the cool thing with foveate rendering is if you imagine you have like, let's just even say you have a 180 degree field of view that you need to render, that gets really complex. And if you have like a lot of text and stuff move flying around, you render a lot of data that our eye doesn't really see. We see a lot of things here and uh, where we look at, but then like to the side, it gets like more, um, less color and more like uh, light sensitivity. So what it's actually doing, foveated rendering, and that's one of the things that a lot of the other uh, VR goggles aren't able to do because their eye tracking isn't so great. And what I've heard from the Vision Pro um, is that the eye tracking is really good. So this actually works, um, but they track your eyes and then they calculate where are you looking at, 
and they only render what you're actually looking at. And the rest will be rendered either with less quality, with less color. Um, so it is kind of blurred in a way. Um, so not everything will be rendered at all times, clearly. But if it works well, foveated rendering will cause it that you never notice it. For you, it should always look like if you try to look somewhere or somewhere over here, you will always have a sharp, a sharp uh, vision. But we'll see how good that works because now you already can see like where the issues could be. If the eye tracking isn't accurate now, suddenly it doesn't render the right thing. If your eyes move too fast and the tracking can't keep up or the render pipeline can't switch to that spot fast enough, then you'll have a lag and suddenly this out blurry and then it gets sharp when you actually look at it. So we'll see how it goes. Um, but in theory, no, not everything is sharply rendered at all time. And there is some type of blur in there. Interesting. Uh, Courtney. Yeah, I haven't seen it. No one's, no one's really had a chance to really look at it for very long. Uh, but there's two things to remember in the uh, Apple uh, Pro Vision, whatever it's called, Vision Pro, um, is it's uh, cameras. It, it's opaque. The, the viewer is opaque. So you're not seeing any real world imagery through it, except through the two cameras that are mounted on the outside. So those cameras are fairly wide angle view uh, to emulate your field of view, norm, your normal field of vision. Uh, so those are starting out probably with uh, a lot of deep focus on it. They're fairly wide angle. They start with deep focus. Then there's the foveated rendering that uh, uh, Jonas was talking about and Jason was talking about that that renders the artificial, the overlays, the uh, computer-generated uh, objects that are going to be floating uh, are augmenting your field of view. Those can be blurred depending upon where they want to be placed in your depth of field. Uh, and they will also have to do uh, Gaussian blur, some type of computational blur on the images that are coming from the cameras that are, you know, capturing the real, you know, point of view of the room. So they can blur that stuff artificially in the computational to match the foveated rendering of the overlays to make sure that it its position in the room matches the amount of Gaussian blur they're doing to the actual images that they're overlaying them over. Uh, so it's a fairly complex computational model that has to do two sets of uh, blurring uh, based on where things are in space and your perceptual point of view and only rendering the, the things in the center of the screen sharper than the things at the peripheral side of your vision, depending on where Jay you're looking. Jason, you want to come back in? Sure. Uh, to sum it up, if foveated rendering is doing its job, you will not get sick due to parallax, period. There you go. Well, fingers crossed. We're all looking forward to the first time we get a chance to strap these things on and see how they look. I will also say that if some if a photographer takes a long time to mess with bokeh so that everything, it, displaying that in the glasses will be exactly the same, right? Because that's the content. We're talking about the interface having some issues. 
Let's move to the next. Oh, uh, before we do move to the next que- uh, next question, I have not. I've been negligent. Um, remember, your questions drive the show. So if you have a few more that you want to sneak in there, we've got a pretty robust group. Uh, but we're always looking for your questions every day on the show because you drive office hours by the things that you ask and even more specifically, your votes on those elements. So if you haven't yet signed up and gotten into the Mukana backend system so you can vote on things, please do so. You'll find it makes the show must much more interesting when you can help drive what we spend our time on. Next question. From Samuel Nordvik in Norway, is HP Anywhere, formerly Teradici, still the preferred AMI for running vMix in the cloud? Jonas. I wouldn't say that at all. I think we had like a good one to two months at the start of the pandemic when there wasn't any good alternatives where Teradici was used and then everybody got their bill and suddenly they didn't want to use it anymore. Um, we use NiceCV for our base instances and then we have a quite intensive process that we worked on for the last three, two to three years um, that automatically deploys software on top of that and optimizes the NiceCV instance. Parsec gets installed and logs into Parsec Teams, so that's how we access it. Uh, we have always nice CCV as like the emergency access. Uh, below that, we technically also have RDP, but like within the last two years, I didn't have to use a single RDP connections, luckily, because that can mess up your instance all kinds of ways. And then we use Splashtop uh, mostly, because Splashtop allows you to um, scale the image. With nice CCV, the problem is if you have a 19... 19- uh, 1920 by 1080 canvas on the cloud instance, it will be the same on locally. So you can't like have four on your 1080p screen. Uh, with Splashtop, what you can do is uh, we have instances that have three monitors, which is also a plus for nice DCB. You can easily tell it, hey, actually, I need X amount of monitors. This should be oriented like this, that. And that really helps with like Zoom rooms and like Zoom captures and all kinds of things and then you can say in splash up hey put all of these in one remote access window so i can have like 10 uh different screens on my screen because uh, splash shop can scale them down and then yeah we use parsec for most of the access now and most colleagues i know also use parsecs and haven't heard heredici in a while interesting so yeah things continue to evolve next question from Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, what is the most device that looks and feels like paper for taking notes? Remarkable and Onyx have these digital notebooks, but is there any other alternative? John Snyder, help us out. Yeah, I have the Remarkable too. I really, really like it. I would recommend if you're like me and you like to take paper notes, uh, the Remarkable too is really fast and responsive. Um, it lets me write basically with a a permanent marker, which is a feel I like without running out of paper. <laughs> so um, it also digitizes it afterwards and you can download your notes as um, PDFs, which you can then put into different note taking tools. I don't know if An- Onyx is the Amazon version, but Amazon also came out with a similar tool recently. The benefit to the Amazon one I could see is you can r- write directly on your Amazon books, um, which would be really helpful if you're referencing it for studying and that sort of thing. Uh, but I have would strongly recommend the Remarkable. If it's a problem you have that you want to solve, the Remarkable does a great job. Jason? Yeah, I'll give you the lazier answer. Uh, I have an iPad mini, and there's this 
coating that you can get called paper feel that that actually makes it feel like the stylus is not about to like completely slip off the paper. It gives you just like enough traction. It does mat the screen ever so slightly, but it does a fantastic job if if you already have an iPad and a stylus. Interesting. Next question. From JJ McKenna, San Rafael, California, controlling the PTZ functions of the InstaLink 360 is very easy using ExcelDRO's Move plugin as a filter for OBS. While filter handles exist in Stream Deck software, is there a way to build these in companion from a remote control? Jonas. I'm uncertain if the plugin you're talking about has a uh, some functions into the OBS uh, WebSocket API that you could use directly to control it. But um, what the plugin uses is uh, UVC commands. So someone really should uh, build a little tool that takes like OSC or HTTP commands and sends out UVC commands to the correct um, camera. So it's possible you can do a lot of this also in the browser. So like Video Ninja, for example, allows you to do this remotely. Um, but if you want to do it locally, there doesn't exist a program I know of currently that does it, but it's certainly possible. Next question. From David Brady, New York, New York, is looking to set up a Wintel Zoom room as a test signal source, trying to use VLC to loop video and audio via NDI plugin and bring into Zoom room on the same computer via NDI, but get no audio. What am I missing? Jonas, can you help him out? So it sounds like you're using the uh, NDI virtual input or virtual webcam or webcam, depending on what version of the naming you are currently. They change it every two weeks. Um, you need to go into the settings and enable audio or set it to plus 20 dB. Often it's set to silence. Um, and then I'm uncertain if the VLC plugin is able to uh, output audio as well. One of the tricks we have done for Zoom bots is use normal instances with a virtual background with an empty OBS uh, virtual cam. And you can now put uh, videos as a virtual background and then you have a test uh, drone that way. But yeah, I will would check the virtual webcam settings and then also make sure that you select that as a microphone into... Um, the Zoom Rooms uh, app. And one thing to note there is uh, Zoom will sometimes tell you, hey, this uh, microphone is broken because before the uh, NDI webcam is connected um, to the NDI feed, it looks broken to some states, but uh, that should be fine if you get the pop-up, just ignore it as soon as the NDI is there. And if you want to automate this, uh, check out AV Sonos. Uh, Webcam CLI, we're just uh, automating a build on our end with that. And what's really cool with it is you can create a PowerShell script or command line script that starts it up in the correct uh, state. So like it, you can set it to a specific source, to a specific setting and all that. And you can even do that with all four cameras. Uh, so you could have four uh, bots that way. Next question. From Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia. What makes the T-stop rating, rating more accurate on cine lenses versus F-stop? Is it how it's calibrated or does it have to do with the click positions that more accurately set the aperture? 
two really different measurement things. Courtney, help us out. Well, they're both measurements of the amount of light that's let through to the uh, film surface or the sensor surface. The difference is I think uh, f-stops are theoretically calculated based on the aperture size and the distance and the size of the uh, uh, particular film uh, uh, gauge or your uh, sensor size. Uh, T-stops actually take into account the elements in the lens, the the amount of lens, the amount of light that is uh, that affects the amount of light. The number of elements in the lens affect the amount of light. So it's an actual measurement of the light that makes it through an aperture, uh, the aperture at any setting, uh, taking into account the actual uh, uh, reflectivity or or uh, transmissivity of the lens elements themselves. Whether, but the uh, f-stop just takes into account the size of the aperture, irregardless of the number number of elements of the lens. So it's more accurate. T-stops are more accurate because they're actually measuring the amount of light that hits the sensor. Jonas, like Courtney said, f-stops based on the opening of your aperture, and then it's a little bit of math, and then it's calculated based off that. And t-stops is actually measured what comes actually out. And that's why it's more uh, specific and you can actually like calculate with it exactly for film when you have to like say, oh, actually this light needs to be 10% brighter or 10 lumens or 10 lit, whatever you want. Um, It's more accurate because it's actually measured. There you go. Next question. Samuel Nordvik from Norway is looking for recommendations for a stand that can hold a 55-inch TV, thinking of putting a TV directly under the camera in the back of the room in a church setting to get more eye contact with the camera. Jason Bache, help us out. I think this is a great idea, and I'm not sure if this is available in Norway, but um, I have a pair of these guys that I got on Amazon for 129 U.S., What I like about this particular model is that the TV could be moved up and down quite a bit. There's there's a significant range here. And um, I mean, I'm using it now, but also I really like that they've got cable um, routing that's just completely built into the thing on either side. That shelf is optional. It's it's not it's not necessary. It's not part of the the. The um, the stability of the um, of the TV stand, and I mean I'm I'm using it right now. I I use this all the time to to hold a pretty big TV pretty low, and um, and I find that it works really well. There you go. Let's see if we can sneak in one more before we have to make our transition. Next question. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas is back asking, the Geek Mini IT11 with USB 4 for data transfer and charging looks like competition for the Melee and B-Link. Is this a viable high-end version of these Nook-style computers? And is Intel out of the game? Boy, that's a big question. I mean, Intel, it's hard to say. Courtney, you're a kind of expert on those small computers. What say I haven't. I haven't looked at this uh geek home pc or the mini it 11 yet most of them are built on the same you know reference design so uh the same chipset they use the n100s or the n95 chipsets these days which is the gen 12 i think uh intel and intel has announced that they are going to discontinue their knuck lines so uh, that's what he means by the uh 
However, the small form factor PCs are still going to continue on. Intel never sold very many of their NUCs. Uh, they weren't really designed as a consumer product. They were a reference product uh, so that other manufacturers could use their reference design and design their own. Uh, so I think the Intel NUCs, and the Intel NUCs were usually priced a little bit higher than the competition was able to produce them in China. So uh, uh, the fact that Intel is getting out of the NUC uh, computer sales game, direct sales game, you know, probably isn't going to affect the market very much. I'll have to go take a look at this uh, Geeko MPC and see what it looks like. I tend to buy all of these little mini PCs for some reason. And Stack we appreciate you doing that. <laughs> we appreciate you giving us the benefit of someone who's had them. Um, it is just about transition time, but I want to remind you that tomorrow's show, uh, the weekend Q&A show, uh, a marathon two-hour session devoted to Q&A of your most pressing production-related questions. And if you decide to come back tomorrow and, and participate in this, these are these are the sessions where we decide kind of what's going to be going forward. So you can have an, a direct impact on the kind of topics, the kind of discussions we have in the future, uh, where the show goes, that along with participation in after hours, which of course for the those of you who might be new, is what we do when we're not doing the, the show. Actually, it goes on during the show because it happens 24-7. It is a community of people who enjoy office hours. They stay around there. They answer tech questions. And I can't tell you the number of times I've popped into After Hours with just some problem that I'm working on and found an amazing community of people who are willing to spend their time helping me fix my individual problems. Very, very impressive back-end process. So all of that is part of the Office Hours experience, and we're glad you're here. Now it is time for our back-to-school discussion. We've been talking about the fact that this time of the year, traditionally, a lot of people are heading back into classrooms all around the country. And most of you know that on Saturdays, we typically have our education hours during most of the year. And um, our panelists uh, and our just everybody who's interested in education as a subject uh, are getting toward the end of the summer break here. And so some of our friends who are part of the education community, and I see a lot of familiar faces over on my right as I look in here, uh, I see Dr. Chris Clark and Aaron Graham and John Snyder and uh, Julian Meinold, who I don't believe I've ever met, but I'll look forward to chatting with today. Uh, they're all here. And some of you regular know, some of you who are regulars know that um, we've been doing this for a long time. And it, education is a broad topic. And so uh, we have always had this kind of overall discussion. We want to think and talk about elementary education, secondary college, even adult education. It's kind of all on the table here when we discuss education in office hours. So I'm going to start today's education kind of overview by just re-greeting old friends and talking to some of the people who are in the panel today. I'm going to start with Aaron because I haven't seen Aaron in a long time and I've missed you. Aaron, what have you been doing? Tell us. Hi, Bill. Um, so I'm still only about a month into my summer break. I have about three and a half weeks left. And then my students don't come back till September 5th. So I've been on the West Coast, actually. I was on the West Coast last week for Edge of Protocols, their summit that they do out in Laguna Beach. And then my husband and I went up to Disneyland for a few days. So nice. that was super fun. But yeah, I've spent the summer with nieces and nephews and really just having a great time to taking that little break to relax and read a whole bunch of books. And Aaron is one of the people who helps us with the elementary education. Remember, remind me your grade that you teach. 
I teach third grade. Um, I teach general education, but I also work with students on the autism spectrum. Nice. Very nice. So it's always been from the beginning when Aaron showed up here, I always thought it's, it's fabulous to get a look into that strata of education and God bless you and all the rest of the people having raised a child and gone through kindergarten, first, second, third, and fourth grades. <laughs> I, the word saints come to mind. It's a hard, hard task and you guys do magnificently. Uh, let's sneak over. I don't know who to go to because I got so many people to talk to. Uh, you, Julian, I've never met you before. Can you give me a, a little idea of what you do? Well, Bill, hi. Um, nice to meet you. I, I've Same here. hardly ever been here, only like two or three times in the co last couple of years. And, um, well, I'm a tutor and a teacher. Um, I teach basically from first grade to 13th grade in Germany. Oh. And um, I teach students at home and at school and, uh, yeah, all kinds of different things. So um, it's hard to really put a finger on it. Um, it changes all the time. That's great, though, to have your perspective with such a broad range of different kinds of learners. Excellent. And John Snyder has been here with us a lot in the past. John, how are things going for your summer? Uh, yeah, I'm in corporate education, so I don't really get much of a summer. Um, oh, that's other right. Than I our, we've had fewer calls come in the call center. But what we're working on this summer is revamping our onboarding process from start to finish using an ROI methodology, which is return on investment. So we're really breaking apart what do we do with our new hires? What kinds of goals do we want them to achieve? Um, and what will it take us to get where we want to be? We're adding some classes on customer service um, and just reorganizing all of our courses to make it make more sense for our new hires so that they're well taken care of. Um, but I have been enjoying the sleeping in on Saturdays and I've caught up on my latent sleep hours from our, my Rise Sleep app. Um, so I've enjoyed that this summer. My kids go back to school in one week. Ah, nice. So you're on the parent side of it as well. And also having spent a good bit of my uh, video making career kind of education adjacent, I know how difficult it can be when the corporate suite says, hey, why are we doing all this training? Can you give me some metrics and tell me exactly why we're spending this money? And so it's great that you're doing work in that area to help people understand the value of continuing education for people and how that impacts um uh, the, in the industry in general. And Dr. Chris Clark. Chris, it's good to see you. Uh, you've got some things you've been doing. Tell us about them. Well, thanks, Bill. I live in Tempe, Arizona, where we have barely survived the first half of the hottest summer in history. Two weeks ago, my family and I rented an elegant A-frame cabin in the woods near Flagstaff, 30 degrees cooler than at home, in cool, thin mountain air. We stayed only three days, and the effect on me was immediate and profound. I woke before dawn each day and sipped a cup of tea on the deck, hearing the pine forest come to life. Blue jays and nuthatches, chickadees and song sparrows, tiny verdant and big black crows paraded by, checking on their territory. I was breathing deeply, looking up and out more than down at my phone, living in the moment, marking time by the altitude of the morning star and the rising colors in the east. You get the picture. This brief vacation changed everything. I felt younger, my thinking clearer. I started a writing project that I was stuck on at home. I didn't watch the news. 
I listened authentically to my children and my near adult grandchildren. I took a chance by preparing a new recipe for Spanish zucchini that was a hit. I returned to the Valley of the Sun deeply refreshed. And this is what summer break can do for teachers. It removes us from the intensity and relentless pressure of the school year. Summer break provides moments when we can look up, look to the far horizon, look around and breathe more deeply. We can forget about deadlines and headlines. Summer break is a time to make sense, to take stock, to forgive but not forget, to resolve to simplify our lives by, say, 7%. It's a time to really listen to family and friends who we are too busy and distracted to fully hear last spring. And summer can be a time when we ask ourselves big questions like, so how long until I can retire? Do I really want to do this again? Am I making enough of a difference? Can I handle the stress and the risk? What if I get sick? And should I apply to grad school? Most teachers wrestle with these questions and show up for another year, making the best of their situations, doing their best for the sake of the kids. A small fraction of teachers decide it's beyond their capacity to return to school. In my experience, both decisions are correct. Both the stayers and the leavers should be celebrated and honored for their service to the kids and to the profession. That's what summer break is for, tackling the big questions in June, July, or August at home, at the beach, at Disneyland, or in the shadow of a mountain. Those are the best preparations for a new school year. So teachers, thanks for your service. You are making a difference. Ah, that was beautifully articulated, Chris, and I, I think reach the hearts of a lot of people, teacher or non-teacher, who are watching this today. Um, it is a tough job. I mean, my wife was a fifth grade teacher for many years, an instructional specialist with a school day uh, school district, and I watched the cycle you're talking about through her eyes over and over again, uh, how at the end of the year, all the pressure of all the things that every teacher must try to juggle to make that an effective, successful progress for the students, um, yeah, there was a weight there. And so I, I think Chris has managed to, to encapsulate why that summer break is more than just, oh, good, you get to do, do something else and you don't have to work for three months or whatever it is. So people think about that from the outside, but they forget about the tensions and the pressures. Um, I think I'll, I'll look for anybody else on the teacher crew here who has a hand raised or something else before we get to questions. But uh, John Snyder has raised his hand. So, John, pop yeah, in. As we're talking about uh, education questions and people are considering what questions to put in, it will be helpful to the panel if you indicate audience uh, particularly because just like all technical issues, it depends. It's the most common answer to any education question. So if you're thinking this question's about the teachers versus the students would be helpful to know, as well as is this targeted at a certain age group or just school systems in general. We'll try our best to figure that out as we're reading the questions, but that does help give a little context. 
Absolutely. And I'm kind of interested, Julian, because you go through this large range from the very young to the not as young. Um, What are your what what what's kind of most impacting your thinking about your job in this era? Well, I have this um, let's call it advantage that I mostly have very little groups of students. So um, I can really focus on a single student and their needs. And I don't have to like work out this way of teaching in a, for a huge group, which is very um, yeah, different in, within. So, um, yeah. Have you noticed though any themes that have come from the students that you do work with uh, in this era? Has it been tough getting them back in after the disruptions we've had famously for the last few years? Not at all, just the opposite. Um, they are eager to be- go back to school and to, to learn. And um, yeah, that I, I think it actually gave them a break. And like when we, um, I remember it, they, in the beginning, they were really happy and they were like, yeah, we got off and uh, two months of vacation. And after some time they were calling and we would have online classes and they were like, yeah, we want to go back to school and it's so boring at home. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, be careful what you ask for when you say, I don't want to go to school anymore. That's exactly. an interesting, interesting perspective. Uh, we are getting a nice little group of questions here, but please remember that you drive the conversation. So uh, your questions on this topic will help us fill out the hour and, and be less philosophical, more, more targeted to what you're looking for. But let us go ahead and dive into our first discussion topic slash question. All right, we begin with John Snyder, Reno, Nevada, and here on the panel, what is the best app or combination of apps for students to stay organized with notes, assignments, and project timelines? Practical matters. Aaron Graham, start us off. So my district is a Google district, and I feel as if whenever students, especially in the higher grades, probably fifth and beyond, use all of the Google Suite tools in order to keep on top of their projects. Um, I know many students will put in or even teachers will help them put in um, when their assignments are due and something about the tasks or the reminders that are in Google and that suite will remind them on what days to do certain things if they put that in. Um, So I think, yeah, the Google, Google apps, especially like Google Keep is a great one to look after. It's almost like um, my desk drawer at school, one of them uh, was entirely full of sticky notes, just hundreds and hundreds of pads of sticky notes. I'm telling you, the drawer was ginormous and it was full, but I can't stand paper. So Google Keep is now my, the wall next to my desk where all the sticky notes used to be with all the little things I needed to remember, but it's all in an organized fashion. You can also share those notes with other people, whether it's your teacher or a parent or even a friend that will help keep you on task. And there are little reminders that'll pop up. So they'll pop up to your laptop or even if you connect your phone or other devices to it, it will pop up to remind you. Um, Another app that I found that I'm kind of still working on, it's kind of new to me, is Notion. Just keeping everything in one spot. You can have little tabs for different classes. Um, I don't know if it has a remind feature on it to keep track of things, but you can put in a calendar and things like that. So that might help you stay on track with your goals. But I definitely think the Google app system is probably the best one for students because it's easy and many districts use it. John Snyder. 
Thanks. And Aaron, I think you're absolutely right. If your school is a specific um, type of shop, like it's a Google shop, definitely use your school's licenses. Or if it's a Microsoft school, figure out how to use um, Microsoft OneNote and Outlook. They work really well. And if you're already paying for it, you may as well use what you're paying for. Um, for me personally, when I, I went through my master's degree in the last year, and for my notes, I was actually using a tool called Obsidian, which is a Mac-based text editor, because for me, what works best is I need, I, I prefer everything to be just in plain text so I can move it from system to system or um, platform to platform. And Obsidian just has a whole series of plain text folders that you can link together. You can have um, like webs of ideas connected and you can, it's a really flexible way to use just text. Nice. Julian. Oops, you're right. Muted, I believe, in Zoom. Sorry about that. Um, I always recommend the app GoodNotes because um, we cannot use any of the Google products in our school. So, um, due to data protection, etc. So, um, this one is an app that, um, yeah, as the name says, gives you the ability to do, um, do notes, but you can read your textbooks in it, you can work on it, and it resembles really nicely the old-fashioned analog notebook and uh, therefore it's easy to comprehend the students get it right away and um, you can do very many things with that nice good suggestions all around let's head off to our next question Dr. Chris Clark from Tempe, Arizona writes, I saw a meme online that says the best professional development to begin the school year is to let educators set up their classrooms, meet with each other, and have time to plan. Discuss. Chris, do you want to emphasize or, or elevate any more of the particulars of that? Well, it's a, it's a point of view question in a way. Um, administrators want to welcome the family back and uh, reestablish their authority. Their reason for being administrators is to manage, to administer. So uh, traditionally, the idea was a kind of a deficit model that asking the question, what do our teachers need? What can we cram into a limited number of days before the students return that will uh, up their game will uh, make them more competent or more productive and uh, that's one point of view then that's the administrator point of view what can we do to check that box that says we've done something in the domain of professional development to make our workforce uh, better prepared to do an even better job this coming school year. The teacher point of view is, I can't wait to get access to my classroom because I have a lot of ideas about how to organize it, how to set things up, how to make it feel welcoming uh, for the students who are either returning or a new cohort of students will be arriving, will be meeting for the first time. And I want to, uh, give my space a personality that's consistent with the tone I'd like to set for the coming school year that's happening in a matter of days. So, so that's, that's the tension, I think that, uh, and I'd love to hear from Erin, I see she's uh, raised her hand as well. 
about the, especially the teacher point of view, you know, is it, is this meme right? Uh, from your point of view, Aaron, um, about uh, what we want to, what we teachers want to do is uh, get ourselves organized and our space organized so that when the students actually do arrive, there's a, an especially welcoming uh, feeling to ourselves and our classroom. Aaron? Absolutely, Chris. With especially with younger students, they want to come into a classroom that it doesn't have to be Pinterest or Instagram ready, but it should be set up so that they feel comfortable and that they're ready to learn in a new environment. So many of them come in while very excited. A lot of them come in nervous as well. So when we don't have that time in our classrooms and we can't set things up the way we want to, we already feel like we're behind the eight ball and we just started. So I definitely think that meme is completely correct. And, but I feel like my administrator, my principal and vice principal, while they do have to tell us a couple of things like in a really quick rundown form, they tend to do an activity. Um, I'm going to butcher what the name of it is, but it's something about um, rose, bud, and thorn. So something that happened over the summer that was a rose, so like a great moment, a bud, something that you're excited to happen in the next, whether week or month or school year, and then something that maybe wasn't so great. Um, but it's time for us to share with our staff. So we tend to learn some new things about our staff members from you know the three months or the two months we haven't seen them. So usually they're really good about not wasting our time. But when I think about the professional development section, I think of another meme. I think of the, my favorite show in the entire world is Parks and Recreation. And I see the, um, the Ron Swanson in Home Depot meme in my mind of, you know, the, the worker there comes up to him and says, you know, can I help you with anything? And he says, I know more than you. <laughs> Where, I'm not saying I'm the smartest person in the room, but typically the people that come in for professional development haven't been in the classroom in a while. I think the best professional development I've received was actually during, I want to say the April to June of 2020 when we were all at home and we got to choose our own adventure with digital professional development, but it wasn't from people that they paid from out of district. It was our own teachers. So we saw someone at our middle school teach about a Google Slides thing. We saw someone else do, um, Erica actually did a whole thing on mindfulness to how to do that online with our students. So I feel like there's a lot that teachers know, but are never given the chance to share what they know unless they're kind of put on the spot in a staff meeting like, hey, I know you know how to turn on the Promethean board. Can you show everybody? Um, but yeah, typically if we just kind of had our own time to do things, um, it would make a lot more sense. So yeah, overall, unless it's amazing PD, like someone truly who's been in the room um, like I know, like John Carippo, who was on our show a while ago, you know, he comes into classrooms and he takes over for half an hour and he does things with the kids. Like to me, that's better professional development than sitting, listening to someone drone on about like, first you click the file menu and then you click make a copy. Like at some point it's just difficult. 
Uh, that's interesting to me. So I'm hearing a little bit. You're you're more excited for the middle out stuff than the top down stuff uh, in terms of let's let our team shine. And there's a lot of wisdom here. And it's all well and good to bring in the big thinker from outside, but that's not really as cohesive a process for building the team spirit. Am I, am I articulating that correct or am I off target? No, absolutely. It's like if like you want to hear someone who's in the field, like I'd much rather have a firefighter come into my classroom and say, this is what I do every day. You know, this is the gear I put on. This is the time I have to do it. You know, these are the feelings I I feel during this time versus, you know, maybe reading a book or having someone who isn't a firefighter tell me what that job is. I want someone who's really, who's been in the trenches with us. And recently, it can't be that you were in the field 10 plus years ago and you remember back in the good old days, you know, when the kids were in rows and, you know, you got worksheets every day and, you know, wrote out your times tables 50 times. You know, you want someone who's been in there in the past couple of years and said, hey, I've dealt with fourth graders, you know, after the pandemic, or I've worked with seventh graders, you know, who couldn't get access to this online during the pandemic. Like that at least touches or gets close to home. Like it touches home base for us and it makes it feel like, okay, you actually do know what you're talking about. So if they know what they're talking about, they've been in the field, they've been boots on the ground with us. No problem. I'll listen to you and I'll take whatever you have. But if you haven't been there in a while, I just know more because I've been in it. You know, that's fascinating to me because it's telling me that, that coming out of this mess that we've been in for a while has kind of made you more resilient as a teacher. You, you're, you're seeing more clearly what impacts your students really as opposed to theoretical. Again, is that do you feel like you made progress because of all these stresses? Oh, absolutely. Especially I think I know so many teachers said they hated teaching online. I personally loved it because I got to know their their families, their brothers and sisters, and then some of them I got in the past year or two. You know, like you you got to to see like, oh, mom's at work and I'm, you know, you know, here at a at a babysitter's house and I'm doing the best that I can. You know, y- you think more about what's going on once they leave the school versus just when they're in front of you. I know we, we've been thinking about, teachers always think about that, like how their students are reacting at home and, you know, like, did they have enough breakfast? Did they get to their homework? Because, you know, maybe they were watching a little brother or sister and then they had to go to bed. You know, all these things that while we thought about it, it wasn't in front of us until the pandemic hit. I just feel like it's just, it's a new perspective. Chris? I just wanted to underline one one of the many good things that... Um, Aaron shared with us, which is that um, outside experts like me, you know, I've been a a professional development guy occasionally uh, when I was younger. And uh, what we don't have, what the outsider doesn't have is contextual knowledge of this school, this classroom, your kids, what happened last year, in your neighborhood and so forth. And those are hugely important in terms of uh, what can be helpful information or sounds like too general, too abstract, and probably irrelevant to this year, 
this school, this classroom, this teacher, these students who, whom you've gotten to know, or you know rumors about them from the second grade teacher. <laughs> so you know who's coming up through the pipeline. So that, that contextual information is really important in, in being able to offer something uh, relevantly support, supportive of, of the teachers in your audience. And as, as Aaron pointed out, uh, your peers in your school uh, share that contextual knowledge and information. And so that makes them a more credible and relevant source of expertise, even if they don't have the fancy degrees of the person we brought in from Stanford or wherever. Um, they do have this deep, um, practical, grounded knowledge of this place this history and these aspirations we have going forward. Aaron, you had a follow-up. Yeah, uh, Chris, you just sparked something and reminded me that my district has eight elementary schools across our district, and there are eight totally differently represented schools. So most of the schools have a specialty, especially when it comes to special education or socioeconomic status, things like that. And I know that the teachers in my building, we're very focused on students on the autism spectrum because that's where our programs are. But teachers in other schools might not need that information. But then again, my school has a very low population of English language learners. So our school doesn't need as much. We still need some, but we don't need as much information on that as maybe two other schools in the district. So every school is a different profile. So if you bring in one person for all the elementary teachers, maybe only an eighth of them are going to get what they need out of it. So is that really the best way to use professional development money? Interesting. Maybe one size doesn't fit all. Let's go to the next question. From Brian Schwartz, Baltimore, Maryland. Can you imagine the combination of iPad and Vision Pro resulting in new forms of educational applications? John Snyder, take us into it. I think it is a start of something that can be really exciting is immersive experiences. Right now, there's no public school likely that can afford to have a reasonable number of iPad Pros even. We, but there's also development costs. So when we're thinking of building learning materials, um, just to give people an idea, if you're building even just a one hour video, you can expect about 40 hours of development time just for video. And immersive experiences are significantly more complicated than that. They're so complicated that our organization has chosen not to pursue them at all, partially because our employees they are sitting in front of a computer all the day. So immersive for them is just putting it on their computer screen. What I do think is interesting is the idea of USDZ or USD and these objects that you can examine through some plate of glass. And because many, many students have phones, cell phones that are capable of viewing that. So I think what we'll see in an education sector is more creating experiences that are a little bit more universal than you're in a headset. Um, so you could put a model out in front of the students on a table and the two students could take that apart and they could see view that through a shared iPad or through a phone that they bring in themselves. I think that's way more likely than to um, have immersive reality uh, experiences. Be interesting. Oh, Julian had a thought. Julian? Oops, muted still. Considering... Um 
the price isn't an issue, which it is, but let's just uh, pretend it isn't. Um, I don't see it um, in the classroom because um, it looks to me like it would be too isolated for the student. You wouldn't interact with the other students or had trouble with that. And a great part of teaching is the interaction between the students, between teacher and students. And I don't see that with it right now, maybe in future versions, but right now um, it looks to me too isolating. Um, but in other cases, I totally agree with what John said. Um, when you learn for yourself, I think it could be a great tool. Aaron? Uh, Julian, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of isolation with the Vision Pro. Um, also, I can tell you for a fact that school districts do not have the money for this, maybe in very, very affluent communities. But I know my, my district runs on Chromebooks and they used to have the tablet form, um, a Google tablet for the younger students, but they've even since gotten rid of those because they're too pricey to keep up in terms of um, fixing them. But then also there's there's very few ways to use it to prove something to the students. So obviously we want students to have as many real world applications and immersive um, education as possible so they can use these skills in the real world. But there's so few things that can be done with it besides like, I know Alex has always talked about the, um, like in the anatomy classes, seeing a 3D heart and being able to turn it and breaking it up into different pieces to see something that is very useful for students in high school and college. But for younger students, that might not work out as well because there's nothing super concrete they can use in order to bring more information and background knowledge to something that we're learning. So while I think it's a great idea for maybe for like single students or like um, like at home, if they're trying to um, learn more about a specific place and they want to walk around that place, that's great, but they can't interact with other people or other members of their class. And I feel like that's where you learn the most when you're able to collaborate and think together to find answers to problems. Yeah, I think these are all very rational things. I, I I can't help but the going back to one of one of my college jobs that I was terrible at. It was as a short order cook, and I remember the absolute awfulness of being inducted into that world because I had no idea what I was doing. It was hot, it was nasty, <laughs> and yet I had to do it. And I remember thinking, "Gosh, I wish somebody could really show me how to do this, rather than te telling me four or five things and then saying go do it and watch me flail around." Now, this isn't education as much as it's training, but it would have been fascinating to be able to have a really good short order cook capture their experience of how they think, you know, describe how they think, the process they go through, how they're keeping five orders going at the same time, when they're looking up, how they're checking tickets, how they're doing the rest of this stuff, and to just give me an overall broad view of what does it take to perform this function from the point of view of somebody who's good at it. I think that kind of thing I can see as an early big success for these kind of immersive things. That is different than a general education need. But I think that that is what I'm going to keep my eye on. It In the training realm, will this start coming into those kind of things? John Snyder. Yeah, and I, I can imagine all sorts of applications for it. Like the question said, for example, if you're in a, a middle school classroom and you're talking about how different um, 
you're talking introduction to physics and you're saying how do different objects bounce based on their physical properties, you can't easily have a titanium ball that you have in the classroom that you're observing dropping, but maybe you could build an experience where you're looking through a pane of glass or through your vision goggles and you're comparing two objects side by side. I'm going to drop a wood block versus or a wood ball versus a titanium ball and we'll measure how they bounce differently. Like if we had the physics engines, I can imagine that being a really cool thing um, because it allows you to supersede the rules of the world when you have these uh, virtual experiences. I, I just don't think we're there yet. I think it is the future though. Yeah, well, these are such early days. No one really knows what this can end up doing. That, to me, is both the blessing and the curse of it. We're having trouble getting our—I'm having trouble getting my head around it. And there's just so many possibilities. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, in one-on-one-to-one -on -one deployments, have you had more success with iPads or MacBooks in kind kindergarten through 12th grades? John Snyder. All the schools I've heard of are either using iPads or Chromebooks. I have not heard of any schools deploying MacBooks on a one-to-one -one basis, especially to K through 12. Yeah, I wonder uh, on the higher education side, I, I have heard of a lot of things saying you must have some sort of laptop to bring with you uh, to the beginnings of your college career. Uh, I don't know if that's still the case, but I've just heard some talk of that sort of stuff. Uh, Julian and then Chris. Julian? Oops, mute button again. This is why we've all switched to hardware mutes. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, one thing I um, always um, yeah, want to encourage with my students is that they still write per hand. So they don't type in their keyboard, but they still use um, their hands to write it. And uh, therefore, an iPad always comes first and, and then comes a MacBook. I also think it's more versatile, like when you want to read a text, um, you get a textbook on your iPad or on your uh, notebook, you would have, like, you can take the iPad like a book in your hand and you can go into the couch or uh, the sofa um, and read it there. And, uh, well, most of my students and personally, I don't like to read on a laptop. Interesting. Uh, Chris Clark. Uh, this question from Douglas uh, reminded me of a, another issue with Macs versus other other systems like this, um, the Apple universe compared with the Google universe, for example, which is that uh, I've heard from system administrators that uh, Apple products are much harder to manage in in network applications in education than uh, than the Google systems are or the or the Microsoft Windows uh, universe is. Um, I've not been such an administrator myself, but I just thought I'd bring that up that maybe in the one to one deployment, as Douglas talks about um, both iPads and MacBooks, depending on your experience with laptops versus tablets are are uh, very appropriate and very useful but um, once you begin to scale up to a, a network or a system-wide operation i think uh, the word from the system administrators is uh, it's hard it's hard to uh, for some reasons that i don't understand it's hard to administer an apple environment hmm. interesting let's go to the next question 
from Laura Thompson, Beaumont, Texas. And this question is open to all parts of education. We had an accessibility series this summer. What are the day-to-day realities for educators inside this topic? And I'm just going to divert for a second because I had my sister in San Francisco called me after the first one of these and said, that was fabulous. And she is retired, has nothing to do with any of this, but just as an outsider, was glowing about what the team had did over the course of the summer while we we're on the kind of educational hiatus in terms of uh, looking at the community for disabilities and the rest of that and just really talking through that it, i understand it was just out, outstanding and so if anybody is interested in that or wants to point people toward it the saturdays through the summer have all been kind of revolved around that topic so that's it aaron graham so accessibility is huge especially in the younger grades i mean i i've taught everything from first through fifth so that's kind of my wheelhouse but thinking about from the smallest things like a pencil grip for a younger student or a, one of those fat pencils for younger students to help them write. That's a very hard thing for them to learn. That's an accessibility feature that we don't really think of because it's such low tech. Um, but then thinking about how my students have been able to use technology if they struggle to read or to write or to type, especially. I've had students who are incredibly bright with these amazing storytelling capabilities, but they really have difficulty typing out the words because they have issues with spelling and grammar and things like that. So showing them the accessibility features with um, speech to text is has been absolutely phenomenal. And then on the reverse side to have kids that struggle to read, be able to listen to stories and comprehend and be able to interact with the text with their other peers or with me is another feature that has been coming about more recently. Um, Like some of it's been getting a whole lot better, including using intonation and things of that nature. Because one of the things I'm pretty sure I shared on the show when I was on it was one of my audiobooks. Um, I'm a huge audiobook listener. I listen at 2.85 speed. I get through so many books. Um, I think as of yesterday, I've read 116 books so far this year. Um, but to think about the fact that some students need something like that, not only to keep them on pace, but to keep their focus has been fantastic. Thinking about the fact that students are able to really listen to what other people are saying in order to participate in the conversation. That's another accessibility feature. I mean, I would love to, I I would love Laura to do even more of these accessibility days where we can really talk about ways that we can help not only kids, but adults too, because I know putting a book in front of me is going to be difficult because I'm going to get distracted. My ADHD will get me very distracted with anything that's in the room. Whereas my audiobooks come with me everywhere. I mean, my AirPods have almost died multiple times listening to things throughout the day. So I just feel like the more we can give not just students, but all people the chance to access something that's going to help their lives in the long run is absolutely beneficial. So all these things have been so beneficial to listen to. So thank you, Laura, for the question and for getting that ball in motion for Accessibility Saturdays. Amen. Uh, Chris Clark. One of the big questions that I urge teachers to think about um, 
episodically during the year is who's being left out. You know, you got, if you've got 30 students or you've got 120 and if you're a high school teacher, um, you know, the kids that sit in the front row and you look forward to seeing their smiling faces, they come early, they raise their hands, they help keep the ball rolling and they're going to be fine. They're going to be the next generation of teachers, we hope. But, um, but the question we need to ask ourselves more often is who's being left out? And accessibility is certainly a part of the reason that some of our students are being left behind or not as well served um, by what we have to offer as, uh, as we hope they would be. So this accessibility series this summer, which I've, I've watched several of those uh, Saturday shows, and it is amazing. It is eye-opening to, to people like me who do not have a, um, a need for uh, special accessibility accommodations. I have, I wear hearing aids, but the hearing aids make make things accessible that uh, wouldn't otherwise be as accessible to me. Um, but getting into the, the deaf world and the vis visual limitation world and other um, disabilities that we can accommodate um, is, has been uh, truly inspiring and eye-opening to see and hear um, people who are experts and advocates for the inclusion of everyone, not just the ones that are sort of like us, you know, younger versions of ourselves is the mistake that we make as teachers. And that's fine to serve those people well. And then we have to ask that tough question, and who is being left out? So thank you, Laura, and the whole team. Aaron, you had a follow up? I do. Um, it actually it reminded me the very beginning of the talk over the first hour uh, before I was coming in, I was talking with Mickey and with TJ about my audio because clearly I'm not in my studio today, but because um, my husband is working, but I had just my AirPods and I was trying to do my audio and it sounded terrible. Um, so my husband very quickly, you know, ran to find me the mic and the everything else. And, and even that, while it's technically not an accessibility tool that we would think of, I know when I've watched YouTube videos to learn something and the audio quality is garbage, I can't listen at any speed, never mind going quicker. So I feel like office hours in general, even though it hasn't been attached to accessibility specifically, having us do mic checks and go through, you know, having really strong audio, the visual is just as great. But for me, if I can just listen to what's being said, like if it's more of an audio thing than a visual, that's a huge piece of accessibility too. If we don't have access to learning with voices that are clear and ways for us to actually hear what the people are saying or if there's background noise and all this stuff, um, it's so hard to listen. A, I was actually listening to a TikTok creator today and she's, she's pretty new to TikTok and um, she's super nice. And But she put up a video with background music and I don't think she knew how loud it was because I couldn't hear her. I just heard the background music. 
So that's what kids and adults of the like experience. So the concept of accessibility with, in terms of at least audio, is so beneficial. And I feel like office hours as a whole has taught us all about that, which has been very helpful. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. From Gordon Lake here in Los Angeles, California. Is there a website for educators that curates the latest tech news relevant to the classroom? Or is tech in the classroom not that much of an issue? Aaron. So tech in the classroom is always an issue just because there's going to be someone in the room that knows how to use it and someone that doesn't. And sometimes it's not the way you think it's going to be. Sometimes there are things I don't know that a student has shown me and vice versa. But there isn't really a specific website, but oddly enough, things like TikTok and Instagram, having teachers pop on and say, I just found this great new AI tool and showing us it. I learned about a couple um, when I was out in California this past week that were absolutely amazing. There was one, um, there was an AI website called Question Well, and it generates questions, whether it's uh, multiple choice or open response based on a standard you put in or an article that you can put into AI and it generates questions and answers for you. Obviously, you have to check the relevance and make sure that it's correct. But there are so many things that teachers learn and they throw out there onto social media that I feel like it's been really beneficial because, again, it's used by teachers in the classroom currently. It's not a company trying to sell you on something when they're, you know, in a corporate office or they're at home working remotely. But these are teachers who have used it and said, my third graders loved this, you need to try it. So I feel like that's the best way to to learn more about any sort of tech or any fun new ways to make your lessons more engaging. Well, this stuff is rolling through society so fast that the generative AI and the rest of the things that are in the news all the time, boy, probably one of the biggest places it's going to have an impact is on education and the rest of this. So everybody has to keep their eyes open. It's not a time to sit back and think that what you did 10 years ago is still working just fine now. You know, your skills probably are, but boy, everything around that is changing day by day. Next question. From Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland, if you could invest your own money in educational technology companies, would you, how would you begin to evaluate them? Julian, we'll start with you. Julian? Okay. So, um, first of all, I would think about accessibility again, not just because we had the two questions ago, but um, this is, I think, the most important thing in the school right now when it comes to technology. Um, because all the other technologies which are already out there are not implemented into the school system yet, at least not here in Germany. So um, the schools still need time to catch up. So uh, when it comes to accessibility, I think there's still a wide range where school could improve rather quickly. But um, in all the other cases, like for example, um, it's still kind of hard to get a digital school book. Um, you would um, ask the, the company who produces school books and they send you like a paper book and a CD and you would have to either copy it and scan it and uh, to get it to the students online. You don't get a digital copy of a school book. Um, so there is so much to, to um, where schools still have to do their stuff that, it, yeah, they have to catch up so much. Um, I think in 
it's uh, there's no need for new technology in school right now. Chris Clark. Uh, Brian Schwartz, the way I would uh, make a decision about an investment would be uh, what is the need that uh, by analyzing what the need is that the uh, educational technology company is trying to meet and, and is that need a legitimate need of teachers? Is it something that real teachers uh, struggle with and would be delighted and relieved to have uh, a technological helper um, to uh, to meet that need? Or is it something that, um, as Steve Jobs used to say, uh, people don't know what they want. We're going to tell them what they want. And when they see it, they'll fall in love with it and they'll, they'll pay a premium to uh, to buy this device or, or this service. Um, teachers do know what they want. Um, they'll recognize an, an authentic uh, help versus a threat, a threat to replace them or to uh, digitize them or to um, uh, devalue some of the relational matters that teachers uh, legitimately care about so much in, in, and replace them with uh, what why we call transactional matters, that uh, thinking about the, uh, the teaching learning exchange more as a, a business transaction or a productivity race. Uh, we don't need more uh, productivity. We need something that's authentically helpful and accessible to our students as well as ourselves. John Snyder. Yeah, I would not necessarily follow investment advice coming from me, and this is not investment advice, but let, let me start with that. Um, what I would look at is you have to remember the buyer in most educational type of work is going to be not the teacher and nor the student. So uh, make sure you're thinking about what does the buyer look for? Look for things like recurring revenue in existing um, schools systems. Um, if there's people on the board of directors who have connections with school boards from some of the larger school districts, those are things you might look at because it's those kinds of relationships that are going to cause those companies to be purchased. It's less about what's, it's not just about product market fit as far as what's really cool or what teachers need. It's what is the buyer, the person making that decision most likely to purchase. Aaron Graham. I think it all has to do with equity and durability. <laughs> when I think about ed tech, I think about my third graders with their, with their Chromebooks. And I think about when they come in in the morning and they have their Chromebook and they say, Miss G, my, my little brother, you know, knocked my Chromebook off the kitchen table and it's broken. So then we have to get our amazing tech person to come take it and work on it to the best of his ability while dealing with everything else that's going on in the school, plus other machines that are broken. So if there was durability to some of these machines, knowing that, you know, students are going to be using them and students are not very careful with their things sometimes. Some are, but a lot of them are not. So to think about durability is a huge concern. But the other thing is equity. Thinking about what students have available when they're not in front of you. If students, if you give them great homework of watching a video 
and getting ready for class the next day, but they have really spotty internet or they're in an apartment complex where, you know, 50 other people are on Zoom calls for work. They're not going to be able to have as much bandwidth to watch their video. So is that equitable? There are all these things that you have to think about in terms of what you're buying for your district, because even from one city, there are parts of the city that, you know, has more equity and some that don't. So there's a lot that you have to think about in terms of equity. So I think durability, equity, and then the whole concept of accessibility, which I know we spoke about, but those three things are things that I know I would be investing in. John, you want to follow up? Yeah, and I would also say, and and as far as where's the industry going, um, technologies, I think that will be more likely to be picked up by schools are things like generative AI type tools, tools that allow schools to teach more students to the same quality with fewer human resources. Um, as sad as it sounds, I think we're going to be in a crisis in the near future where that's something that uh, will definitely be needed. A small tool anecdote, though. I'm I'm in I'm doing more and more audiobook narration. It's something I told myself I was going to do this year, and I've been reasonably successful at starting my career in that. And I was looking for just something to mark up PDFs. You think that would be a really simple thing, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, I know there's tons of packages out there. So I started thinking, well, I've got all these friends and I've got uh, access to the last years full of expertise, and I should be able to find this. And I went looking for a PDF markup thing. I'm still looking for it. After five months, I'm trying to look for something that allows me to do annotation on top of it. But I also have circumstances where I get two or three characters who are having a dialogue. And I want to do, like, select the text, color code it for each character so my eye gets a cue as to which voice I'm using for which character. I'm still not satisfied with all the advantages I have in terms of this connection into technology. Finding the right piece at the right time has been really difficult. And I just want to express that, that sometimes you're not going to find exactly what you're looking for. And you have to adapt to the way the manufacturers think you're going to use these tools and to just be a little forgiving. Hopefully it gets most of what you want, but we're still not at the place where I, I wish I could put into a table. I want these 10 things and these are my priorities and tell me which one to buy today. So far, I haven't found that to be the case. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, have you been using TikTok in the educational technology mix? Do you think a national TikTok ban would negatively, negatively affect education? Erin, you mentioned TikTok before. What say you? I do. I I, I love using TikTok. Um, at, I want to say when in 2020, I was saying to myself, I'm never going to download this. I feel like I'm just going to, you know, be on it 24-7 and I don't want that. But then a teacher friend showed me this really cool video and I got hooked. And so many of people that I follow are teachers and they say, oh, this is what I'm using in the classroom. It's a really quick and easy way for teachers to see what works in the classroom. It's a really quick video format. So as much as I love watching YouTube videos, sometimes I just want something super duper quick and like a minute or less. And I feel like TikTok is a great platform for that. So if there was an, uh, a national ban, I feel like it it definitely could affect education negatively. But we're teachers, we're resilient, we will find another way to get content out. Um, actually, a really great meme that I saw just to go back to the beginning was um, someone asking, you know, which 
which group of people would survive a zombie apocalypse. And it's always the teachers because we'll always find a way to make things work, even if it's the most random of ways. We'll just MacGyver whatever we can to get the students what they need. So it could affect it, but I also think places like Instagram and YouTube would kind of pick up that slack if TikTok were to go down. But personally, I love it. Resilience, the watchword of this era, perhaps, because things we've depended on for a long time maybe aren't as dependable as they used to be, and new things are coming all the time. I don't know what to do. I just got asked, I was shooting uh, cosplay photos at Comic-Con. That's one of my great relaxers once a year. I get to go down there and do that. And I kept getting these asks, well, can you give me your Instagram I don't have one. I tried to skip that list. And you'd see the different eras, different things rise and fall. And you get the, can you put it in Facebook? Facebook? Who uses that anymore? And you get the, it's on TikTok. Well, what's it going to be next week? Is WeChat coming? What? I'm lost. But maybe that's just part of life now. Thank you to our educators for this fabulous tour, uh, for getting us back into kind of the saddle. Uh, we will continue to slip back into education as we get through the summer here. Uh, don't forget, tomorrow, two hours of Q&A. So if you want to help kind of determine the direction for office hours uh, and get your discussion in, that is going to be taking place on two hours tomorrow, starting the regular show. Also, our thank yous. We can't forget our thank yous. Thank you to everybody who participates in office hours. Without you, uh, this would be impossible. So for the producers, those of you who put in questions and got your answers, for the panelists, great group of panelists. Without them, this does not work. And our back-end crew, mission critical in all cases. After hours goes 24-7. It's always on. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching. Great job, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bill. <laughs>